Luke 9. Luke chapter 9. A couple quick additional announcements here that we wanted to share first off. I don't know, maybe uh, Renee shared this, but on the back there, there are CDs and also DVDs from the Christmas program from a couple weeks ago. If you weren't here and wanted to grab one to see how it went, feel free. Or if you were here and wanted a copy of that, back there on the back table, DVDs and CDs for that. Plus also back there to my right is our... Annually, we support this. It's the uh, Right to Life uh, signature ad campaign, an opportunity for you to take a stand on life. If that's something that you interests you, I encourage you to go back there and get the information, prayerfully consider that, and that's all back there to the right, and that will be put in the local papers there in supporting uh, life, obviously. So take a look at that and prayerfully get involved with that if you would. Okay, Luke chapter 9, continuing our study here through the book of Luke. Last week, we did verses 27 through 36, and we did the transfiguration of Jesus And we talked about how that is a turning point in the ministry of Christ. From this point forward, his sole purpose is going to Jerusalem and his death on the cross. It's not that he won't do miracles. It's not that he won't teach in parables. It's not that he won't serve people still. But his focus is going to Jerusalem for his death on the cross. But what we're going to do here, hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 37 through 62 today. A lot to cover, but it all flows together. And I hate to break it up as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Luke. What we're going to talk about today are really two things. First off, the focus of Jesus. Jesus is always focused on serving and loving and ministering and seeing people get saved. That's the first word, focus. The second word that you're going to see here is this idea of the failure of the disciples. And each one of these examples, there's about five examples this morning, the disciples always fail. Always fail. Something that we can relate to. And Jesus is always focused. That word focus is so important. As a lot of you know, we got five boys at home. And what we try to do is one of the words that we use all the time is that idea of focus. We'll be doing some schooling stuff. We'll be doing some other stuff around the house. And you're just feeling things get a little out of hand. One of the things we say is, okay, guys, focus. Focus on what we're supposed to be doing here. What's the task at hand? One of the words that we use out here at church a lot when we're doing meetings and stuff like that is, okay, let's focus on this. What, what is the purpose? What's the goal? For Jesus... The focus was his death and resurrection. For the disciples, like I said, a lot of failure, but you also see God's mercy and grace. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Verse 37 of Luke chapter 9. It says, Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. As he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Now let's just break this down here real quick. Note the miracle here. This boy being saved, this boy being healed there from the demon. Now, it's not that I want to skip over that aspect of it, but we've covered the idea of healing. We've covered the idea of what that meant for demon possession earlier in our study in Luke. What I want to focus on here right now is note the phrase in verse 38, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. Only child. Now, just last week in the Transfiguration, God the Father said that this is going to be his son Jesus, and his mission was to go die. Now think about that. Only child, this man's about to lose his only child. God the Father is going to lose his only child too in the form of Jesus. See, so often we look at the world and we look at everything going on and we come to this conclusion that no one understands 
what I'm going through. Don't we do that? No one gets it. No one understands how physically sick I am. No one understands my difficulties in my marriage. No one understands how difficult it is at work. No one understands how difficult it is with my kids. No one gets it. And so we have this little Eeyore spiritual moment of woe is me. It's the end of the world. Well, here's a person that says, who understands what I'm going through? This is my only child and he's about to die. Well, God the Father knows what he's going through because God the Father is about to have his only child suffer death too. Here's a verse. If you're taking notes, write it down. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, verse 17. It says that we have a high priest in the form of Jesus who sympathizes with us. See, one of the lies from Satan is he always wants to remind you that you got it worse than anybody else in the whole world. Nobody, nobody has it as bad as you do. Nobody does. So you sit there and you just keep getting yourself all worked up on how bad you got it, how rough it is. God wants to tap you on the shoulder and say, listen, I know what you're going through. Now, your spouse may not understand, your co-workers may not understand, your kids, your friends, your pastor may not understand. You may try to open yourself up to them and get nowhere, but you have a high priest in the form of Jesus who says, yeah, I get it. I understand. He's the one that gets it. Just like this man about to lose his only child, God the Father gets it. And look at the desperation of this man. Verse 38, I implore you. Verse 40, I implored your disciples. That word implore literally in the Greek means to beg. This man is at at the last straw. He has nothing else. He is begging for somebody to step in and do something to heal his child. The disciples couldn't do it. Verse 40, I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, we know from studying the other Gospels in Mark 9, the reason the disciples couldn't cast it out is because this type only came out by prayer and fasting. Now, here's the first failure of the disciples. They weren't being the spiritual people they could be, understanding the importance of the role of prayer and fasting. Now, Jesus, look at his response in verse 41. O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Now, I, I looked this verse up in many different translations. I looked up the original meaning of the words, and I really wanted to water down what Jesus is saying. Can't do it. Christ is frustrated. No, he's not angry. He's not upset. He's frustrated. He's frustrated that his disciples that he has been ministering to and training one-on-one for years couldn't cast out a demon. He's frustrated about the world and how the world is falling apart. He's frustrated. See, I look at verse 41, and this actually encourages me because I'm allowed to get frustrated in life. I'm allowed to get frustrated with how the world is going and the direction it's taking that I don't like. I'm allowed to be frustrated with situations of other people's choices where I think they can make better choices. I get frustrated with my own choices. I get frustrated with things happening in church. I get frustrated just like Jesus does. But here's the difference. See, as human beings, when we get frustrated, you know what we have a tendency to do sometimes? We just quit. I'm done. I'm so tired of this marriage. I'm so tired of being the only one that puts effort in this marriage. If he wants to quit, I quit too. I'm so tired of work. I'm the only one on my shift, the only one on my line actually doing anything. They all want to work lazy. Fine, I'll work lazy with them. I'm so tired of the world, so frustrated with what's going on in the world. I just give up on the whole world. I just quit. I'm so frustrated that ministry in church. No one sees what I do. No one understands how difficult it is, and I'm never serving with that person again. I'm done. See, that's man's response. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 42, as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. See, even in frustration, Jesus did not give up. He still was focused on his ministry and serving and healing and helping people. The disciples failed. 
They were not able to, through prayer and fasting and faith, cast out the demon. They were a failure when it comes to that way. Jesus was frustrated, but he still served. What an example to us. You will get frustrated in this life. Do not allow that frustration to control you. Instead, focus on the big picture, which is seeing people get saved. And that's what matters most. Let's go to the next one, verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be portrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, verse 43, from a PR perspective, Jesus should have run with this thing. I mean, he's got a crowd. Everybody's impressed with what he just did. Verse 43, they're amazed at the majesty of God. They're marveling. Instead, verse 44, guys, I'm here to die. That's not a real pick-me-up of a message. I'm here to die, guys. Verse 44, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus, his focus was his death. That was his focus. He was not going to let anything betray him. He was not going to let anything get him off that mind, even the success he had in verse 43. This is the one thing I've seen sometimes. Compliments can be as dangerous as criticisms when it comes to ministry. See, most of the time when you think of a ministry being shot down, it's because of just all the negative people attacking it, putting it down. Sometimes when people compliment a ministry, that's just as dangerous. People get a big head, and they start focusing more on the person rather than focusing on the ministry. And keep that point in the back of your mind because they're going to build on that. But look at the disciples here in verse 45. They did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it. You know, you would look at that verse, and you would say, let's give the disciples a break here. They didn't get it. But also look at the end of verse 45. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples were walking in fear, not in faith. They were afraid to ask. They were afraid to ask what's going on. This is the second failure you see of the disciples. Is instead of someone saying, raising their hand and saying, Hey, Jesus, sorry, I don't get it. Could you just explain this? They were afraid to ask. Can't you just see the disciples here in verse 45? Jesus makes this great statement. Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of men. All 12 disciples are just sitting there going, Amen, you're right. They have no idea. They were afraid to ask. When you walk in fear and not faith, things fall apart. Boy, as Christians, we make sure we need to walk in faith, not fear. Fear is powerful. Fear takes your eyes off the Lord. Fear brings discouragement and depression. Faith brings hope. What did the disciples do wrong? They didn't ask. They walked in fear and not faith. And then to add to this, look at verse 46. Then a dispute rose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to him, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Okay, Jesus just healed this boy. The disciples couldn't do anything to heal him. And guess who's having the argument on who the greatest is? The failures of the disciples. They're the ones arguing on who is the greatest. Jesus is focused on what? Verse 48, ministry, serving, salvation. The disciples are failing over arguing who is the greatest. Turn with me real quick, if you could, to Mark chapter 9. Let's build on this a little bit. Mark goes into a little bit more detail here. Mark chapter 9, please. 
Now, it'd be great to think that this was just a one-time deal where the disciples argued about who's the greatest. But in Luke 9, they argue about it. Well, in Luke 22, they have the same argument. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Look here in Mark 9, verse 33. A little bit more background. It says, Then he went to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, I don't know about you. This is how I envision this. They're walking down the road. Jesus is a few steps in front of them. The 12 are back there on their own murmuring, talking to each other, having this little argument over who's the greatest. I hear this all the time. I bet our house will be upstairs and the boys will be down in the basement. I'll hear a loud bang, followed by tears and screaming. And by the time I get downstairs, I ask what happened, and all four of them say nothing. Now, I'm not smart, but I'm not dumb. And something happened. I'll be in the living room, and I'll hear them in the bedroom, and I'll hear the conversation getting more tense. I'll hear the conversation getting a little louder. I go in there and say, what's going on, guys? Nothing. Now, same thing happened here. They're walking down the road. Jesus knows what's going on. So he asked them, what were you guys talking about? Look at the response, verse 34. Silence. Do you ever realize when we're silent before the Lord? It'd be great if we were silent before the Lord out of awe and respect and worship. Generally speaking, we're silent before the Lord when we know we did something wrong. Think back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, and God says that he was walking through the garden looking for them, Adam and Eve did not cry out. Why? Because they knew they were wrong. They were hiding themselves in their nakedness. See, when I am quiet before the Lord, it's usually because I feel convicted. And I don't want to talk to him. When I'm quiet before the Lord, it usually means I don't want to be in the word. I don't want to be in prayer. I don't want to be in church. Because I know what I'm doing is wrong. These disciples knew what they were doing was wrong. They're arguing about who is the greatest when just a few verses before they couldn't cast out the demon. Look at Jesus' response, verse 35. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be least of all and servant of all. Look at the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. I'm telling you right now, if I was in Christ's position... At this point, I would cut the 12 and start over from scratch. Instead, he calls them together. He teaches them. He's working with them. This love and grace. See, here's the ongoing theme. Jesus is focused on ministry and serving and salvation. The disciples are failing left and right. That last worship song we did in worship, what a wonderful song it was that goes right into the message here of we're failures. We're complete utter failures, and God still loves us. He still works with us. Mercy and grace. The disciples keep failing. Jesus is focused, but he keeps working with them. Jump back, if you will, now to Luke 9. Let's build on this. Our first story with the demon-possessed boy. The disciples failed. They weren't being the spiritual men they could be in prayer and fasting. Jesus was focused on serving and healing. The second one. The disciples failed. They walked in fear, not faith. They were afraid to ask questions where Jesus is focused on going and dying. The third one, the disciples failed because they're arguing about who's the greatest where Jesus is focused on saying the purpose is to serve. What happens now? Verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbid them because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him for he who is not against us is on our side. I will tell you right now, I love verse 49. If you don't fit into my little box of Christianity, I just don't think you should ever speak. Isn't that how we are? Verse 49, you know what? You're doing things, and you don't got permission to do those things, so let's just just don't even say anything. 
I like verse 49. I can live in verse 49. I've shared with you before, I'll have this tendency to go on the TV and flip through all the Christian stations. And I'll find some of these pastors and teachers on there that are just off. I'll sit there and watch their entire program. There'll be a good pastor or teacher on the other station teaching something edifying and good. I don't want to watch the good. I want to watch the bad because I like getting upset. And I will watch this guy. And it'll be so bad, I'll call Dawn and the boys in and say, guys, you need to watch this. Forget about the edifying guy on the next station. Let's watch this guy right here and let's talk about how wrong he is. See, I like verse 49. Lord, I'm going to tell everybody that does not agree with me to just be quiet. I don't ever need to hear what they have to say. But look at the response of Jesus, verse 50. Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. What a tough verse. Let's build on this a little bit. Go with me, to, if you will, to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, please. Let's see what Paul has to say about this. We struggle with this in Christianity. This idea that people may be teaching something a little different, looking at things a little different. Now, we're going to build on this. I want you to make sure you hear the full point. Philippians 1. Let's go ahead and start here in verse 12. Philippians, written by Paul. Paul is in prison while he's writing this, so keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 12 of Philippians 1. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul is saying, guys, look, even though I'm in prison, though I'm in chains, God is using this. People are getting saved. Amen. Verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See, he says, and other people are emboldened by what I'm doing. My witness is strengthening other people. Amen. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my change, the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Look at that phrase one more time in verse 16. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition. Paul is saying there are people preaching Christ, doing it solely for their own motives. I call this rock star Christianity, where the ministry is built around this one person. I've been on websites, I've seen the programs where it's all about the guy. All about the guy. And about how great and amazing he is, how wonderful he is, and he is elevated in the status of the church to be the most important person. And it's all about the guy, the rock star Christianity. Selfish ambition. I sit there and I look at those programs and I say, this guy just cares about himself. This guy just cares about getting his name out there. This guy just cares about the attention that falls on him. See, I can relate to verse 49 of, Lord, forbid them. They're not in line with what I think. So now I wish we could stop right here, but Paul had to screw this up by putting verse 18 in there through the Spirit. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Oh, I hate that verse. Paul comes and says, listen, yeah, those guys are prideful about it. Those guys want the attention. He goes, but they're preaching Jesus. See, there's some people on the television I'm not a fan of. I'm not a fan of their ministry, and I don't like the way they present themselves. I don't like the way they present their ministry. I don't like it at all. But you know what? When it comes to what they present about Jesus, they present the truth. They present that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. They present that he's the only way to get to heaven. They present that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and Jesus is the only way to have salvation. I can't argue with that. I want to argue with that, but I can't. 
And that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, they may have a selfish ambition behind the scenes that may be about them, but they're preaching the truth of Jesus. Now, this is not a teaching on the fancy word that's thrown around all the time about being ecumenical. Let's just all get together, hold hands, put aside our differences, and sing kumbaya. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying here is this, that the foundational truth of what Christianity is, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Paul says that's what matters. Now, a lot of other stuff they get into, there's different layers of that, and that's another teaching for a different day. But what Jesus is trying to say here back in Luke 9, he goes, don't forbid them just because they're not in your clique. What Paul is saying here in in Philippians 1, don't forbid them just because you feel they're vain. They're teaching about Jesus, and that's what matters. Christ is focused. The disciples, they want cliques and groups. One more passage on this before we go on. Turn, if you will, please, to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. You wouldn't think that Numbers is a great book when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but there's a wonderful teaching in Numbers 11. Numbers 11, please. We have a tendency as Christians, if everybody does not line up exactly with our little box, they're obviously wrong. Numbers 11 shows this. Numbers 11, and let's go ahead and start here in verse uh, 24. Numbers 11, verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Moses takes his 70 men that God has given them, puts them around the tabernacle, verse 25. The Lord came down in the cloud. Remember the cloud from last week. We talked about the cloud in the Mount Transfiguration, the presence of God. Spoke to him, took of the spirit that was upon him, and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did again. So God's doing something amazing here. Moses is there, the 70 men are around the tabernacle, the spirit comes down on them. God's doing a mighty, mighty, amazing work. Well, what happens? Verse 26, but two men who had remained in the camp, the name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. The spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. They weren't part of the 70. They weren't around that tabernacle. Well, the Spirit moved on them. They weren't around the tabernacle. They're still prophesying. Verse 27, a young man ran and told Moses that Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Verse 28, so Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. They're not part of the group. So since they're not part of the group, they shouldn't be allowed to do this because we got a rules. we got a click going on here, and you got to meet our rules and our standards, and this is how you do it. You're not around the tabernacle. You're not part of the group, so don't you dare take any of the Spirit. Look at Moses' response, verse 29. Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. Moses said, Listen, the Holy Spirit's on them. That's all that matters. That's the focus of Jesus. See, the disciples want to get into an argument. Lord, forbid them to teach. We told them not to because they're not part of our little group. Jesus said, wait a second, they're preaching the truth. Just let them preach. Moses, Lord, forbid them. Moses, tell them no. Moses says, no, that's the Holy Spirit on them. Who am I to say no? Paul, these guys may be vain. These guys may have selfish ambitions, but they're preaching the gospel, and that's what matters. We fail in that area. It's amazing as Christians how divisive we become. 
when really the sole purpose is seeing souls get saved through the teaching of Jesus. I want to stress this without watering down the truth of the gospel or the Bible. That is obviously key. That's foundational. But seeing souls get saved, boy, that's what matters. Let's see what else happens here. Verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Okay, just like I like verse 49, I like verse 54. I tell you, sometimes instead of praying for people, I want to toast them. I mean, let's just be honest. You guys are better than me. You probably won't admit that. But... Sometimes in our Christian walk, we're not looking for that person to get saved. We're looking for that person to be judged. You probably have people you work with. You may have people you live with. You may have people you go to school with. You have people that you know closely, and they're not walking with the Lord, and they frustrate you. They annoy you. And so instead of you hitting your knees saying, Lord, bring salvation to them, Lord, I just want to toast them. Think about that. Think about in the world. Let's just even go one step bigger. Not maybe people we know personally. People we just know of in the world. That we know are causing harm to our nation. They're causing harm to the churches. They're causing harm to the gospel message. They're causing harm to the things of God. Are we praying for them to get saved? Or are we praying for them to get toasted? See, most of the time we're praying the second thing. Lord, just burn them. Toast them. So I try to find a balance. What I pray is, Lord, either save them or get them out of the way. Now, to be honest, I lean more towards get him out of the way than I do to save him. That's something I need to work on. But as Christians, our mindset is supposed to be verse 56. We're here to see men's lives saved, not destroyed. But in my flesh, I sure like 54. I like 54. I got a whole list of people I wish that were just removed. God says, that's not my heart. But Lord, look at the damage they're causing our society. Look at the damage they're causing the gospel. Look at the damage they're calling. Yeah, just like Paul did. Paul got saved. we got to watch ourselves as Christians that we're not constantly praying fire down from heaven prayers. Our heart should break that these people don't know Jesus and that we'd want them to come know Christ. Now, you may think, okay, that person's never going to come know Christ. Listen, Paul came to know Christ. Book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar came to know God. If those two guys can come to know the Lord, don't you think almost anybody can come to know the Lord? We've got to watch ourselves as Christians that we're not doing the fire down from heaven prayers and we're doing that our heart hurts and breaks for those that aren't saved. See, the disciples failed. The failure this time, they wanted judgment. They wanted fire. What was Jesus' focus? Salvation. Look at all this. Our first story, verses 37 through 42. The disciples failed. They were not the spiritual people of prayer and fasting they should be. Jesus just focused on healing. Verses 43 through 45. The disciples failed. They walk in fear and not faith by not asking questions where Jesus' focus was dying on the cross. Verses 46 through 48. The disciples failed. Because they were arguing about who's the greatest, where Jesus said in verses 46 through 48, the purpose is just to serve. 49 through 50, the disciples failed because they wanted their little cliques and their little groups. And if you didn't line up exactly with what they said, you're the one that's wrong. 
where Jesus said the importance is the gospel going out. Verses 51 through 56, the disciples failed because they wanted fire. They wanted judgment. Jesus, verse 56, his focus was salvation. See, it's a list of failure after failure after failure after failure. And Jesus is always focused on the good things. It's hard to be a disciple. It's very hard to be a disciple, which takes us to our last passage here, verses 57 through 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell. We're at my house. And Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we covered this just a few weeks ago when we did our, we took a two week break there for Christmas. And when we did a study on the wise men, we went to these passages. So I just want to hit this real quick. This is what God is looking for us. The first one, verse 57. We have the, we have the words, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. But verse 58, are we willing to make the sacrifices? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I know people that have a lot of words, but they're not willing to make the sacrifice. As the joke goes, they're willing to serve God till it hurts. Once it hurts, they stop. As we've said out here many times, Lord, I want to be a missionary to the upper middle class. I don't want to deal with any baggage. I don't want to deal with any tough stuff. I want to deal with good, clean, moral people that are so close to salvation I just need to go read John 3, 3 and John 3, 16 to them and they'll get saved just like that. And then I'll lead them into church and they'll sit in my row and everybody will look at me saying, wow, that's the ministry I want. I want that co-worker that's such an amazing co-worker that I can just keep telling them about Jesus. Okay, what happens if your ministry is the co-worker that absolutely no one can stand? No one can stand. And you're the one that has to work right beside him because God says, your heart has been changed in Christ. You have grace and mercy for the unlovables. What happens if your ministry is to go serve the people that have nothing? They're the complete opposite of who you are. And God says, can you love the unlovables like I do? See, this guy, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I will do anything, God, but here's my clauses. I won't work back here and I won't work back there. No, part of ministry is I will serve and do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want. That is being a disciple. The next one, Jesus said, follow me. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, if you don't understand biblical context in New Testament here, this sounds really harsh. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. It's not that his father had died. What this man is saying is... I feel I have responsibilities to my family. So once my responsibilities to my family are done, I will then come serve you, Lord. See, same thing happens today. I don't know how many times people come up to me and say, I really want to serve God. Well, that's great. Pray about where you want to serve. I will. It's just really busy at work right now. When things settle down at work, we'll really get involved. It's really busy with the kids right now. When things settle down with the kids, we'll get really involved. we got this project going on at the house right now. When that gets done, you'll really, we'll really get involved. I'm telling you right now, no matter what phase you're at in life, there will always be something trying to take your time away from the Lord. Always be something. This man, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says in verse 60, I am more important than anything. Will you put me first? Verse 61, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell. We're at my house. Now, that makes it sound like, once again, Lord, just let me go say goodbye to my friends. I just got them over real quick, and let me say goodbye, and I'll follow you. 
What that verse is trying to say is that sometimes we want to keep one foot with the friends and one foot with the Lord. Do you know anybody like that? Monday through Friday, they do whatever they want, but by golly, they'll show up Sunday for a good hour, hour and a half at church. But Lord, let me do what I want Monday through Friday, and I'll be yours on Sunday. Lord, let me be the way I am at work. I mean, we tell a few stories that are off color. Our language gets a little harsh, but that's just the group of people I live with and work with. You know my heart, I love you, and on Sundays I'll be yours. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. It just doesn't work. See, Christ is asking for commitment here. Verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I've mentioned this example to you many times before. Growing up as a kid on the farm, when dad, we went out to work, ground or chop, dad would always say, look for something in the distance, be it a post or a tree or a pole. Keep your eyes on that and you'll keep your lines straight. Every time you would turn around, you're going to get a crooked, zigzag line. Well, that's the same thing that happens spiritually. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Things work out okay. If you constantly keep looking behind you and your past and your life, you're going to get crooked. You're not going to be focused on Christ. A true disciple says, I will make the sacrifices that need to be made. The true disciple says, I will let go of all commitments that I have and follow Jesus. And a true disciple says, I will let go of all relationships that cause problems to follow Christ. Is that a big deal? You bet that's a big deal. Be quite honest, that's why Christianity doesn't take off real well. It's not really a great PR message, is it? See, we've said out here many times before, the best way to get people to come to church, don't talk about hell. Don't talk about sin and keep everything nice, light, and easy. Don't talk about commitment and sacrifice. We don't want that. But the true message of Christ in Christianity is, Jesus died for me. So since he died for me, I want to live for him in everything I do. Even though I'm a failure. See, look at the disciples once again. How many times do they fail? They failed spiritually. They failed by arguing. They failed by being in fear. They failed by having the wrong heart. They just failed again and again and again. But look at chapter 10, which we'll get to next week. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. After this chapter of failure and failure and failure, guess what Jesus does in Luke 10? He sends them out. See, that's grace. That's mercy. See, you can sit here and just talk about how big of a failure you are. Or you can get up in the love and grace and mercy of Christ and say, I'm still going to go out and serve him even though I'm a failure. Don't allow the enemy to get in there and convince you that nobody cares, to convince you that you are such a a loss of a person that you're beyond the grace and mercy of God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God has a plan for you, and he's going to use you. Just like in verse 1 of Luke chapter 10, he's going to use these failures of a people. If you were not in the position of Christ, wouldn't you not at the beginning of Luke 10 say, guys, I'm starting from scratch. Listen, I've invested a couple years into you guys. This is not working out. I appreciate your time and effort. I'll give you a good letter of recommendation. But just go. Please go. I'm going to start over again. He takes these utter failures of men and says, I still want to use you. That's an amazing thing. And a lot of the things they fail in, as we get through the rest of Luke, they're going to fail in it again. That's the beauty of the grace and mercy of the Lord. To be a true disciple of the Lord, Jesus says, I want your heart. Are we willing to give that heart to him, to let go of those things that we know cause problems? Are we willing to give ourselves completely over to him in all ways and all things? That's the cost of being a true disciple of Christ. And I tell you, it's worth it.
because you get to serve and walk and minister hand in hand with the Lord and you get to impact people for eternity. I'm not putting down what people do for a living. Don't take it that way at all. But the majority of us, when you work a job like that, you're not really impacting eternity. But when you serve the Lord at work, at home, whatever, you get to impact eternity every day. You get to make a difference in people's lives forever. Wow, what a blessing that is. Marvin Kelly, if you want to come forward here for the final song. Let's have a question.